Final Night Poetry Slam. I want to sew the world into its sheets. I want to beat it with a bat until the warning sticks. A handgun is a machine. I'm tired of holding the wounded animal of my heart and instructing it on how to bleed. All I see are stars in the mouth of a tiny ghost. Hello and welcome back to the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. I'm your host, Eddie Eifler. And if you want to know what happened, how it happened, who was involved, you want to get to the people behind the poetry, well, you're in the right place. I want to give a huge, huge thank you to our interview last week to the one and only Jen Rinaldi, one of my best interviews, uh, one of the more, more popular ones we've got up so far. And if you haven't taken a listen at it, then I highly recommend you do that. We've got a lot to get through today, so without any further ado, I'm going to introduce this week's interview, and it was quite a coup, because it's been a little while since I think Panama Sueto has done any kind of interview of this magnitude, at least it's been a number of years. So a little bit of background before we dive on into it. Uh, Panama Sueto was a member of the 2006 championship team from Denver. He was also a founding member of Slam Nuba back in 2007, and has been multiple national teams. He has toured for many years with Ken Arkind as the, quote, dynamic duo, poetry duet, where they led workshops, they did performance feature sets, and they just caroused all around the country, spreading the good word of Denver, the good word of poetry. So, without any further ado, here is our interview with Panama Soweto. <laughs> our guest this week is Jean-Claude Futrell, Panama Soweto, former National Slam champion... <laughs> Uh, yes. Two final stages. This is on true. A national, on a national platform. This is true. How you doing? I, I'm doing really well. Uh, here with young American Eddie, Eddie Eifler. I know. Yeah, if we're pulling out whole names, yes, if we're doing it, uh, yeah, let's talk about the good old days. Uh, you, you were the first person I met in a poetry slam. Absolutely. I remember that night well because yeah. it was the first time I ever hosted a slam. It was. And you came in for the first time with Mercury. So yes. take us through that. Um, yeah. What led you to... That venue on yeah. that night, like take us through that. Experience. Wow, I had uh, I had gone through a bad breakup um, at that point with a, a woman that I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with, and uh, that breakup, um, you know, uh, and going back and thinking about it, I thought it was mutual at the time, but I pro- I probably was the problem at that point, um, and uh, there were some issues that I was dealing with, and I was I was I was lost, um, to be honest. And I had known and remembered from my, uh, my teenage years that there was always something going on at the Mercury Cafe on a Sunday. Uh, back in my day, back in like the 90s, uh, the Mercury Cafe upstairs used to have live hip-hop on Sundays. Uh, a couple of buddies used to run like a hip-hop cypher um, up there. And honestly, when I'd gone in on that Sunday, I was hoping to find that cypher. But I didn't. I found something even more special, and that was a poetry event. And at that point, I had no idea what slam was. 
I walked in and I saw that there was a band like on stage and uh, you were walking around with a sign up sheet and I had no idea what any of it was. And I believe the first thing I asked you was what's going on or something to that effect. And you kind of broke it down for me that there was a jam before the slam, then an open mic and then a, a slam. And I was just like, well, can I can I do all three? And I bent the rules for you. That you night. did. Typically, you cannot do all three. All three. You, but yep. to set the stage for, for our listeners here, this was yep. the week of nationals. It absolutely so was. Yes. Most of the poets yeah. were out of town. Yeah. They were in St. Louis. That's true. And even not, not even just the team, but a, uh-huh. a couple of poets went out there just to be entourage for them. Absolutely. So, yeah. so we were dead that night. I yeah. knew like, all the bodies. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody you could. And so I was like, yes. And not only that, though, too, three. but it was also, I mean, that was, uh, you know, during finals too and that the Merck team had made finals um, as well so it was it was huge that was an absolutely huge night and like and Denver was at least the Denver poetry community was all the way behind um, the Merck team at that point so yeah and so I yeah and you were gracious enough to be like you want to do everything sure I remember you read a poem for the jam I did. I did. In two rounds. I did. I mean, two rounds. Never slamming before. And and not even having any, like, formalized slam poetry. I knew nothing of, like, slam format. Even, like, the style, I guess, if we could say that there's a style. We all know that there's no, like, slam style. But, uh, you know, the... um, the, the tricks of the trade, you know, the tools that most poets use in order to, you know, slam. I, I had none of that. I had a lot of hip hop. And you had a notebook. I had a lot of bars and a lot of and notebook stuff. Everything out of that notebook. That's what I had. And uh, and I'll tell you right then and there, that was a uh, that was a magical moment. I can remember that moment um, vividly that night. And it was really important to me um, to get up on that stage and to feel accepted out of nowhere, in a community that I, I didn't belong to. I, I just I stumbled upon it because I was, I was in need of something. I needed to connect with people. And I got that immediate gratification there. And you were the ambassador to that. And so uh, it's, no, I, I honestly, um, that's something that I always hold near and dear to myself. And when and people ask me about, like, well, how did you get into Slam? You're a part of that story that comes up all the time. So that was 2004. <laughs> that was 2004. That was uh, August in 2004. Yes, it was. Um, take me through these next experiences. I know that you did yeah. a lot of stuff at the Casbah. And I know oh, yeah, Deadly Pins. regular Pins. reader at Pretty Boy School of Public. Pretty Boy School of Public Speaking and Cafe Cultura as well. So as soon as I found that there was this culture of uh, poets um, in Denver, I immersed myself in everything. And to be honest, um, it was a little difficult at the Mercury Cafe because I was the only person of color continually slamming at that time um, there. And that caused a little bit of a stir with some other poets who didn't feel comfortable with me being in that setting and even doing well, I guess. And, and poets that I respected and liked. And that hurt my feelings, too. Talk um, about that a little bit. What do you, uh, give me more detail. Yeah, so um, during that point, and this, this has been a point of contention, and it's even still, it still leaves a little bit of a wound um, at that point, but there were some, uh, some poets, um, including a, a poet at, the point, uh, at that time who was going by the name of Dea Coli, uh, who, who very openly... Uh, 
told me in one setting that uh, there was a reason why I did well at the Mercury Cafe. And it's because I was non-threatening to the audience as a black man. And I found that very insulting and uh, disrespectful to the art that I was doing at the same time because the kind of poems that I was reading at that time were very critical of uh, the government, especially. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I, I, I swore on George Bush. Um, if WWGB, what would George Bush do? I mean, I'm writing poems that I intentionally thought I was trying to shake people and wake them up, but here I had some African-American poets at that point telling me that my poetry wasn't black enough, basically. And that hurt, um, to be 100% honest, um, on a level where I was still trying to get my, my feet wet, I was still trying to be accepted and find even my own style and my own real voice. I knew the things that I wanted to say, but in the way that I wanted to say them, I was still learning slam poetry. I was like, man, like... Who's Buddy Wakefield, dude? Like, who's Shane Corzan, dude? Like, who's Taylor Molly, dude? Like, who's Mike? Who's the mighty Mike McGee? Please tell me who these people are. Like, and so I'm, I'm still, I'm inhaling everything. I'm taking in these these gods of slam poetry, the the Andrea Gibsons, you know, like who to this day still is, I think, one of my favorite contemporary spoken word artists. Oh, just out, just out the gate. Like I've I've written a tribute poem about her. That's how much I I love her work, not only on stage but off stage. And I believe Andrea goes by they them pronouns now. Not yes, this is true. Yes. This is true. So, and so, so you you want to branch out and you want to go to like everything you get your hands on. So everything. talk to me. Let's break them down one at a time. Talk to me about uh, the Casbah. Casbah. So the Casbah out in Aurora. Uh, had a crew of poets there uh, by the names of the Deadly Pins, uh, run by my man Q and, uh, and by my homeboy Reality, right? Reality was the host, right? And uh, this venue, um, every week, brought in a crowd of a few hundred people packed into this tiny little nightclub uh, right there off of 6th Avenue and Chambers Road in Aurora. Uh, and uh, it was just a great, just just venue for energy and music. They always had a, a live DJ, uh, you know, a D oh man, we talk about the music. Uh, it, 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 the, the poetry was set on the stage where there was also a dance floor. So immediately after the poetry was done, the music would just kick in and then people would just start dancing. And so the energy was the energy that I loved. And uh, poets were really welcome there. You know, anyone who wanted to get up on stage and spit those bars, if you had something to say and you had a powerful voice and you could make an impact, the crowd embraced you. The crowd embraced you and embraced you well. And that's what I loved about the Casbah. Um, and so it was dope. And, and those days, like we did, like I, I got so immersed with them, like I took trips uh, with them. We went to Houston once to do an event, uh, which was absolutely incredible. And so the Deadly Pens um, and their... Uh, influence on me, I think, was uh, it was monumental in my development, to be honest, because I found a venue that I didn't have to worry about, one, the competition part of it with the slam. I didn't have to worry about the other poets criticizing me uh, for not being black enough. But there was still that thing to work for, the, that, oh. that deadly pin. Oh, that so deadly like, pin. Yeah, you had to earn a deadly pin. You didn't yeah, just didn't walk just in and away. they didn't give that away. So I had to show up every week. Not only spit on the mic, but also support the other artists too. 
Because I was also inspired. There were some poets there. There was ruckus. ruckus. You know, there was ru- man. We start talking about those poets that would get up there and kill those mics. You know, like the, the old crew, like Spirit Born. You know, there were so many other poets that would get up there. Yeah, we, oh my God, we start talking about all these poets that would get a purity. All the poets that would just get up there and just spit their bars and do their thing. Like they inspired me too, outside of slam. And so I was looking for. I was looking for whatever it is that poetry does, I guess. I was looking for those connections on a deeper level than just being recognized for whatever words I could write. I was looking for whatever it is that heals people through poetry. And that's why I did not limit myself to just one poetry venue or one poetry event or one open mic or one slam or one reading or one, hey, I got a chat book coming out. You want to come to the, yeah, I'll come. Yeah, you know, I didn't limit myself to any of those things, any youth poetry events, anything, anything that I could find, uh, Swallow Hill, anything that they were doing around town that had anything to do with poetry, I was there at some point, you know, because I loved it so much. So uh, also now let me uh, ask you about the Pretty Boy School of Public Speaking. Oh man, let's talk about that. Ken Arkind, yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, Pretty Boy School of uh, Public Speaking. Uh, small little coffee shop located uh, downtown off of Wazee and what was that? 17th. Uh, 17th, yeah, 17th and Wazee. Uh, open environment for poets to come in and kind of use that venue as an incubator for their work, right? If you're getting ready to slam, maybe you want to test out an idea. Maybe you don't even have the whole poem written out yet. You want to test out an idea. You want to collaborate and write too. There were always writing sessions as well, especially with haiku, which is what I loved, like falling in love with haiku and uh, having that in a space where it was, it was not competitive, but Poets were pushing each other to write as funny and creative and interesting haiku as possible. It was just, it was power, man. It was energy, you know? You, me, Ken, Aaron Bradley. Aaron Bradley. We were all just trying to one-up each just, other. Just trying Aaron to write Bradley. the most creative, like, and, but it spread, though. Because mm-hmm. then it spread to poets like Allende yeah. and Bobby Lefebvre, Right? And Theo Wilson, you know what I'm saying? Like every, people just started doing it because we were doing it and it was cool, you know? And it was like, man, like, what can you, what can you do? What can you do with 17 syllables? What do you, what you got? You know, like that, and that, and so us like going back and forth and testing them on each other. Like, what do you think of this idea? What do you think of that idea? Is that cool? Oh, that's hilarious. (laughs) Like, you know, like in that, that environment, like I think was, um, it was special. You know, and, and touring around the country, you know, and, and that comes later down the line from that. But like touring around the country, you know, years later and, and seeing other scenes really made me appreciate what we had in that moment. When we're talking about Denver slam poetry and spoken word, 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007, there was some classic stuff that came out of Denver. There was some special stuff that came out of Denver that, I mean, I don't think a national poetry slam final stage could encapsulate. You know what I mean? I feel like the stuff that we, I think, honestly, I think some of the best stuff that we did, uh, nobody saw. I'm talking about practices. I'm talking about, I'm talking about doing guerrilla poetry out in Confluence Park. I'm talking about hitting 16th Street Mall. I think some of the best, most energetic, like, uh, uh, impassioned work that we did, we didn't do on a big stage. 
at least the stuff that I know that I enjoyed the most. And I felt like, wow, this, this just, that poem broke my heart. Or that poem put my heart back together again. I felt like that kind of stuff didn't come with the competitive stuff that we got all the accolades for. Yes? Um, take me up to 2005. Ooh, 2000, up to 2005. Uh, so when we're talking about the, like team selection then team and selection. stuff for like 2005, man. Yeah, um, I think there was a lot of writing. There was a lot of collaborative work. There was a lot of uh, strategy and, and, and thinking about, well, how do we approach SLAM um, together as a crew? And I think even with Pretty Boy School of Public Speaking as well, um, like putting together uh, the right poets in the right room, you know? But yeah, so all the things that we were doing at that point, um, I think helped set the stage to make a national championship even possible in the first place. So for 2005, yeah. we're, we're talking about that. Yeah. Here. Um, so it was a tough year for us slam wise. It was. It was tough. You know, because <laughs> we all figured that Ian, Polly, Ken could carry us through. Well, and KDFS, they were gonna make the team. Could that was kind of a through. foregone conclusion. But right. then there was one spot left right. between you, right. me, right. and Jackie Sokola. Yeah. We're like yeah. big three. There was like, who's gonna get this last I spot? I know Jackie. And who's going to take the alternate? And what's going to happen? Like, that was the, the big question. I know. And then it ends up being you as the last competing member. Me yeah. the alternate, Jackie, on the outside looking in. That's right. Yeah. So. And, with, and with that, um, you know, I, uh, I didn't even think I was going to make the team, to be honest. Like, at that point, I was still, to be honest, I was starstruck. I thought that, you know, everything that everyone was doing was significant and strong. People have been on final stage, you know, we're talking about the Ians and the Paulies, you know, and without, and to be honest, and to give a shout out back, like, um, Ian, and this comes during this time, um, as that last spot on the team, Ian gave me at one point the words of confidence that I needed to hear to really embrace my own voice, what to be a hundred percent honest. What Unless that's like some you and Ian type. It is. It is some me and Ian stu- type stuff. But I can. I can. I can. I can paraphrase. Okay. He he literally said that uh, my voice um, was powerful enough to carry Denver. And uh, and when he said that, um, I remember just kind of freezing and stopping and looking at him and just being like, "Dude, um, I don't even know what to I, like." Thank you, you know. And it, it it was in a way exactly what I needed to hear. To kind of break out, I guess, because at that point I was I was starting to I feel like I was starting to write some good stuff, but it was still choppy. It was still choppy stuff that I was writing. I, I felt like I was being creative, and I felt like I was uh, starting to to find a um, like a, a common theme in my work, which was kind of this nostalgic, you know, semi politically charged work, right? And um, I, I still kind of was having difficulty kind of like whittling down, you know, the, the fat, you know what I'm saying? Trying to shave the fat to get to what it is I was trying to say and how I wanted to say it. And when Ian told me that, I felt like I had the green light and the go-ahead from a vet, from a guy whose work that I admired and a guy who I considered a mentor and a friend uh, telling me that. I felt like, okay, now I can do it. 
Because the two poems of yours that are of note from that year, at yeah. least at that particular point in time, yeah. where you had a video game piece. I did. Where you yeah. talked about like growing up and you. Yeah, yeah. Wait, wait, oh, Yeah. And your mom buying the controllers. Yeah. And that, I think, really laid the groundwork for the duet that you and Ken would write. It absolutely did because I was absolutely inspired by Ken Arkine before we even became friends, and I saw him read one up on stage. It's just like, Jesus Christ, that's fantastic. That is exactly how I feel. And so you two kind of you like know? twin powers active. And then that was it. And that was it. That was that was the whole that was a whole era that got created out of that, you know? Um but yeah, there was there was that particular piece that and the uh, other one of note mm-hmm. was your burning Quran's poem. This is true. That you got to do as a featured spot yes absolutely because you didn't get to do it as part of the competition that's right and those like if you look back on those two poems you can really see how they were kind of like the seeds that got planted for stuff that would grow later on like the video game piece really you're right led to you and ken writing the duet yeah the uh, the burning qurans you can see shades of that in wwgbd we want slaves blood oil and anything else not nailed down to the ground. America's business is war and we will fire precision guided missiles until the gates of heaven are charred black. Yeah, and then everything else cuz then we we just went, I mean, with Slam Nuba stuff. That was all like how can we tear the system down with our words, you know, and uhuru. Even still, and that even came from, uh, you know, also a, 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 a bond that we had musically, Ken and I, with Zebra Junction, you know, a bunch of guys that did, you know, some poetry on their own, but also did like music around town as like, you know, rockabilly, you know, rockabilly folk, you know, yeah, rockabilly folk stuff, which they do, which, you know, shout out to Mike and Sean, you know, like I miss those guys. Those guys were absolutely great musicians and, and fun. But like, yeah, all those, those two poems, yeah, if you say that, that kind of led into my, and that's that, and that's, that was my style. And it's still my style. The nostalgic with like writing a poem about like getting my first video game system from my mom and my mom accepting me as this, you know, nerdy kid who, you know, liked comic books and video games and, uh, you know, liked to play sports. But if you're not going to push me into it, then cool. I can work on drawing, you know, and reading and all my other things that I like really, really loved. And then, yeah, uh, the Burning Quran's poem. Uh, which was absolutely politically charged, absolutely religiously and personally charged and spiritually charged with me. And it's funny you bring that up because it is the holy month of Ramadan right now, and I'm fasting right now, and so that's very much, you know, on my mind, Um, even that piece, uh, because it was very important um, at that point that um, the uh, the way that this country was, was moving at that point, we get to this point here, uh, was clearly in that direction, you know. Guantanamo Bay was still something that was and, just, uh, just insidious with its with its infamy and uh, how we were looking at things. So tell me, or take me through your experiences on that 2005 slant. Ah, uh, I was just trying to learn. I honestly, at that point, I, I had no idea how MPS worked. I knew how like our slam worked. I had no idea how MPS worked. So I literally, at that first MPS, was just like, like, I'll take anything, you know what I mean? Like, I'll take anything, like, just let me soak it all in. But even getting to that moment, um, I was was green, you know? So I was just kind of following around, just accepting what everything was. Ian says that's the way it's done, cool. Pauly says that's the way things are done, cool. You know what I mean? Like, KDFS, that's how things are done? Okay, (laughs) 
you know, because I, I hadn't been to an MPS event before, you know, and so I just, I took everything as law, um, and I was just curious, and it was uh, one of the greatest experiences that I can, I can possibly say that I, I can have in my adult life, because it led me to meet so many different types of people, and hear so many different kinds of poems and perspectives, like that's, that's what this whole thing should be about, you know, I know a lot of people take the, the actual competition part of it very seriously, um, which is interesting in a competition where it's not for the money, like at all. It's for the prestige. But Slam opens up other doors. We know that it'll open up doors for writing. You know, there are guys that are still making money writing jingles now, you know, because of Slam poetry. You know, there are guys that end up doing HBO events because back then, deaf poetry was still cracking and popping. On its apex at that point. Deaf poetry was huge, and every slam poet was gunning to get on deaf poetry, you know. So that year, going into um, that event, that's where I, I was introduced to those things, like the poetry beefs, and uh, and who's cool, and who's not cool, and whose room do you not want to be caught in at 3 in the morning? <laughs> right, exactly. Like, who's, who's on the outs in poetry, and who's on the end, and who should you know, and whose work should you definitely check out? Who's the hottest poet you haven't heard? Those kind of things? I mean, being exposed to an Anise... And on that final stage, and because the lights flickered, and we, you know, the, the way the story goes, you know, um, the lights flickered. He had a moment. Well, that was, you know, wasn't that? I thought that was 05. Was that 06 when the lights flickered? Something happened in 05, though. The lights went out. Okay, the lights went out. And they, and 06 they flickered. Okay, right. That's right. That's right. Before you made the final. That's right. Yes. And the lights went out. And he kept going. Yes. He didn't skip a beat. And, and, and the crowd, you could hear this audible just, oh, 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 you know, as he's still going. And then the lights came back on like mid-line, and it couldn't have been more magic. And there have been several moments like that, too. I remember the moth with Danny Sherrard. The moth with Danny Sherrard with 07, yeah. There have been some very magical moments on some MPS final stages that I've been privileged enough to see happen. You know, and so that 05 was just, um, it was a lot of being exposed to different styles of poetry from across the country, uh, different poets, different souls and individuals, Mahogany Brown, Jive Poetic. We start talking about the names and the people, you know. It was just, it was good camaraderie, it was good friendship, it was good fun. Uh, the team with like the Omaha team. You know, like the camaraderie that we built with them and Albuquerque and ABQ, like all of that stuff, that meant something. That really did mean something, especially to me. Like, I, I, I found those relationships, like my relationship with Lee, still to this day. You know, we're working on, like, comic book stuff together. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's my guy. You know, and when he comes in for Comic-Con, we hang out and we, we you know, we, we, we go out to eat and we, we chill and we have a good time, you know? And that's something that I still have cherished. That relationship I still cherish to this day. So 05 was more of an indoctrination. It was like, that's exactly what it was. what this world is about. I was curious as hell. I had no, I, I, I absolutely had no expectations, but I knew that there was an expectation for our team because of the success from the previous year. We did not meet at all. I believe we came, did we come in 72nd? It was like 72nd or 63rd or uh, after the first I night, remember. After the first night, we were dead last. I know. Because we had the lowest score I know. in the lowest scoring bout. I know. But then we got a two in our second. That's right. So we, we finished middle of the pack. Yeah, we yeah, yeah. Like in the 
fifties. It was. I, I remember the oh the number was like I God. I want to say it was like seventy second because it was ingrained in my head. Like oh my God, we have to do better than that next year because it was it was it was a springboard for what was going to happen next year. Yes. You, it, to use a sports metaphor, it was a rebuilding year. That's exactly. And, and we, could, we we had we had to foster the young talent, right? You know, but the young talent needed to have those those trials by fire. This is true. To like to, really to, to, yeah, realize exactly. their full potential. Exactly. That's that's exact. It was a rebuild year. That's exactly uh, what it was. Well, I mean, the big key absence was no Andrea Gibson. Right. And no Aaron Bradley. Right. And no Aaron. Right. Right. Indeed. And and even though like. Holly and Ken and Ian, Ian were on that team. Right. Like, those are two big names. Those are two big voids to fill. Right, of course. And, you know, you, your first year, my first right. year. Like, exactly. We were trying to just figure out what was going on. Yeah. We were like, we didn't know what was going on. So, Super green and then without, like, an official, like, coach to kind of, like, really guide us through those he things. He was a player coach. He was a player coach, which, you know, sometimes can work to your advantage or your disadvantage because you second-guess things sometimes, you know? And in retrospect and thinking about that, I think Ian did a great job with what he what he had and what he did. You know, I think he did the best that he could do in that position. You know what I'm saying? Um, and as far as the competition goes, like like I said, I, I had no idea what to expect or what to even like, you know, uh, what to look forward to. And so there was a little bit of disappointment in being so far behind knowing that the previous year the team had done so well. But... At the same time, I was just excited to be a part of something new and something special. And I think it was written all over my face. I think if you look at every photo, every video from any of those competitions that we did that year leading up into, you know, uh, MPS, I think I've got a, a, just a grin on my face that just is, you know, is as corny and cheesy as it possibly could have been. And yeah. if, we're, if we're looking at it through a historical lens, because I think yeah. that's one important way to look at it, if, if we say that these two poems of yours led to these other things later on, Which they that, did. that duet between you and Ken yeah. would lead to bigger things later on as yes. well. Like yes. that, that relationship, that not even not even just the friendship, but that working yeah. relationship Absolutely. really fostered and blossomed in that year. Yes. And that leads us up to 06. Yes. So tell me about 2006. Jeez, Louise. 06, I wanted to bring the fire. Now I'm like, okay, slams my thing. Okay? Just all your chips in the middle. All the chips in the middle because now I'm getting features. You know, people are asking for my work. Like, I'm I'm getting some attention, and I'm feeling very confident in my work. After going through first MPS, now I'm feeling good. And you and Ken... We're on like three seconds in a documentary. Yes, planet. that's true. And so you had like a little bit of national buzz. Had some buzz. You might not have had otherwise. Not at all. No, exactly. Yeah, a little buzz. Yeah, felt, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we had a little bit of buzz from Slam. Yeah, thank you. Now you're now you're bringing up stuff that I almost forgot. Exactly, Slam Planet. Wow. Life is like Street Fighter. Hadouken. No matter how much of a badass you think you are, every little sister can beat you by simply. Randomly pressing buttons. Uh, yeah, so we had a little bit of buzz. Uh, I'm feeling myself a little bit, you know. And so, uh, yeah, I'm feeling the fire. So in all those expanded universes that I was in, including Cafe Nuba yeah, as well. It's hot and it's black. Uh, with my sister, Ashara Ekundayu. Um, and going and doing those showcases and open mics um, every month. Uh, exposing me to other poets in the scene as well, and Cafe Cultura with Bobby and Ada and everybody else out there, I started to personally ask other poets to come slam. 
most notably that year, Ebony Booth. ISIS, Ebony, Ebony Booth. ISIS Booth. You better come slam. We need your voice. She could have we taken need the your whole power. Thing she she was the champ, cleaned so, up. Yeah. If anything, if anything, I'd like to be remembered as a talent scout. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if anything, like, forget my poems, forget whatever I've done in, in Denver poetry. Like, I think, like, one of the, one of the things that I really, I honestly, um, I, I do look back and I say I, I'm glad that at least that I did that, which was pushing both Bobby and Ebony so hard to, to please join this community. You know, and I, I made it a concerted effort. I mean, I was sending text messages. I was calling them. I was like, anytime I ran into them, yo, you gonna come out and slam? You gonna come out and slam? Because at that point, I'm slamming every week at the Merc. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting. We got, we got Merc. We got Pretty Boys. We got Cafe Nuba. We got the Deadly Pens. We got Cafe Cultura. You know what I mean? And then all the other random things. There was Folsom Street Cafe up in Boulder. I was going up to Boulder to slam. Colorado Springs. We were going. We were going hours north and south to go find slam poetry events. Shout out to Colorado Springs because that was part of our, our development too. At least part of my development. So going down to the Springs and being a part of their movement as well was absolutely strong. And I felt like the camaraderie there was powerful. And when they came up, I mean, like. I feel like, yeah, the competition was the competition or whatever, but there were still people that I respected, you know, and liked and considered friends at that point. So, yeah, so if anything, I mean, uh, I think asking what I thought at the time were the right people to get involved. And to be honest, there were people that I was still asking to come slam that weren't, that didn't, that I still thought could have made a significant impact if they would have just got up there and just did it. You know, um, poets that had great poems that I felt, you know, you've got a shot to make a team. This would be awesome if you do it. Um, but two of my favorites, both uh, Bobby and, and Ebony, um, they did. They, they jumped in. And Ebony was late in the game. She came in. She barely, she barely qualified. But then what happened? She, she owned everything. City champ. And had some of our strongest, most important, like, uh, contributions to our work. And, uh, and that, was, that was interesting because then we decided to go with a coach and, and uh, ask Ted Vaca uh, to come back and coach Teddy Vaca, Ooh. Teddy V. We had, we had the deepest entourage of people directly connected to the team Man. that we, we've ever had before or since that year. We had, yes. we had nine people involved in yes. the team. Yes, which was amazing. Because we had the five yes. members. Yes, yes. Vodka and myself. Yes. Coaching, yes. Bianca. Bianca. And Holly, yep. Because uh -huh. they tied. They the tied. Yep. Uh -huh. So we're just like, hey, Noah's let's, art. You're, let's, you're here. Let's go. Right. Let's go. And that's and that's what made that perfect storm that year. That's exactly what made the perfect storm. It was not just um, you know the added entourage, but where that entourage had come from. So now we've got ISIS. ISIS speaks at that point. You know, from Cafe Nuba, like the premier. Uh, poetry showcase, you know, in the city and maybe even in the nation at that point. For poets were coming from all over the country to come for Cafe New yeah, once a month show. And you knew that if you came, you'd have A, a packed room, B, a packed receptive room to your work, 
and you'd sell merch. Exactly. Not only that, but you would also make money. You'd get paid. Some of the most crazy good poets from everywhere. Anywhere, like, anywhere you can imagine. You know, New York, L.A., whatever, wherever. Like, whatever. That's what they, they, would, they would either fly in specifically for Cafe Nuba or on their way to their next gigs, they would make Denver their stop just to make sure that they got Denver because they knew what was going to happen. All right. But what, before we're getting too ahead, yes, this is some. This is a story I've talked about with Jen Rinaldi. Okay, but I want to get your perspective on okay, it. Okay, let's hope my memory me, works. To me, one of the craziest moments of 2006 that I will remember with the day I die is oh. the feature send-off show we did at the Casbah. Oh well, deadly pens. Well, deadly pens do it right. They, let's let's they, let's they talk about that. Oh sure. yeah, now that's a memory I remember very vividly yeah. because the hype had been around about our team, right? Around the city about poetry. So poets that mess with other poets know that Mercury Cafe they got some stuff. They got some poems that you're not ready for. We had a poem that year called Fences that was absolutely ridiculous and is still five very five-person piece all of us on stage choreography nuts the writing nuts the energy and passion and all of this was about exactly what we're talking about today border. with the same border wall so this particular piece that we had written was about this idea of immigration refugee status, what it means to be an American, why we want to be an isolationist country in the first place. Who, who are these people that want to isolate themselves anyways? And the alarmists. And all of it. And oh my God. It was, all, it was all about that. And it was this very empowered piece. We got a, a feature at the Casbah uh, because of our connections, right? And uh, that night, as we're spitting our poems, the crowd, they are hooting. Yeah and hollering and going crazy. Jen Rinaldi's up there reading her women's work. And Dear John, the trio, oh, with Katie Worsing and oh, Isis. With Isis? Yeah. Oh my God. That poem blew the roof off that room to the point where people stood up and started throwing money at our feet. They threw, we were passing around a collection plate, kind of, to get some, some, some funds to help fundraise, to go to MPS and help pay for things. Uh, but there was a moment where it became very obvious that uh, the room had completely been mesmerized by our work. And people had gone into their wallets, their purses, whatever, and were taking out whatever bills they had and were literally just throwing them at the stage. Think mid at poem. the like, mid poem, as the poem, the, money, it just, just money is going out. I think at the end of the night, if I remember correctly, we walked out of there with somewhere between 700 to 800 bucks. If I remember correctly, it was, it was that big a number. I remember it being just shy of a thousand. I remember because I remember counting it all. I remember getting it all kind of flipping it just like, okay, let's, let's see what we got here. And I remember it being in the seven, $800 range. I just remember one extremely well-dressed gentleman is the guy who started that. He was wearing that's like right. gator shoes. Yeah. Well, that's the Casbah. That's Aurora. We talking, a we talking A-Town a -town players, this baby? This guy was done to the nines. Hey. He just reaches up his wallet, yeah. grabs some bills, throws them down, and everyone else is like, okay. Yes, <laughs> like let's just do it. And, people, and money is just like, it was just, it was raining in the club. It was like, it was like Chris Brown walked in and it was a, you know what I'm saying? Like, it was a, <laughs> It was just, it was it was a very player moment. It was a very player moment. 
If if poetry has ever had a boss moment, I think that that would that would definitely be a boss moment when you've got people throwing money at your feet for a poem that you wrote and read. To be honest, not to like if we're really talking about that team, that team was an Avenger. That was an Avengers team. Team of destiny. That was a, that was a team of people that came from different walks of life, um, still all loving poetry and still being nurtured in the same community, but coming from different components in that poetry community. And just going full out Voltron, just full out like let's let's just let's explore all the writing we. Nothing was uh, taboo um, with our writing, you know. I mean, Katie Worsing and I, I had a had a had a piece uh, together, you know. what I'm saying that we didn't use in competition. Well, not on M- and not, yeah, exactly, not at Nats, but it did. Oh no, we start talking about dips, man. Let's talk about Dallas, man. <laughs> Dallas, dude. But so that year. To give some perspective as to what was happening, we took first place in every regional competition that we that we did, um, including in Nebraska uh, too, um, in Omaha because we did take that trip out there too that year. So there Except were a couple of, of ex- yeah. That, well, that's true. That's true. What, what, what did we come in on Dallas? That was the second. Was that on, second on a time Very penalty? Was it time? time it was time, wasn't it? That that. That's right. Yeah, you and Ken's duet. It was they yeah, because they start. Okay, yeah. they started it when we got on stage, and not when we start our first utterance. Right. That's right. And we had a huge argument about that. I remember that being a thing. Yes. I remember that being an actual thing. I and just remember that there was a certain established set of rules that we thought everyone was going to adhere to. Abide by. Yeah. And they were they were. Like really specific. That was like yeah. uh, uh, you send up a, a coach or alternate first, right? And then you do like a yeah. solo second. That's and then right. Piece third. Yeah. It was like really it was very alternate. controlled. It was but very then those controlled. rules got thrown out the window because one of the teams only had like a two-person team. And so that's, they, they right. Like, that's right. That's right. You're absolutely Will right. And that's what. That's right. Yeah. That's because right. The whole team like quit that's on right. Like a week before. I remember so, that. That's so they right. Threw the rules out, and but we still adhered to those original rules. rules. Yes, because that's what we planned for. It's strategy. Yeah, we we planned a lot of strategy leading up. To that moment, yeah, um, and so yeah, I, I remember. I remember that room just being another room that was magic. You know, like we we reached the room with the words in the way that we were supposed to. So, departing from the actual poetry stuff, yeah, another very vivid, very strong memory I have is that that breakfast that we all had in Dallas right before we left. Ooh. That experience really stands out to me. Just because of like the the level of racism and the level of oh, yeah. like inconsiderate oh yeah but like not, but it brought us together but not even realizing that like because this waitress the waitress I remember yeah, yeah she didn't even realize she was doing anything wrong she didn't but that you're right that absolutely did bring him oh that brought up, especially with with Ebony with ISIS that brought us together as a team together and and Jen especially too Jen was Jen was just as angry as any maybe even a little bit more so what were your memories of that experience I remember walking up to the counter <laughs> and Ebony's standing there and the mood shifting uh, very quickly um, and I don't remember exactly what was said but I do remember it being along the lines of you people or how are you guys here together or something like that. Well, and she, it was very... She told Ebony that uh-huh. she looked like she just came off a soul train. Well, that, that, was, that was the first thing that kind of made us look like, mm. But really? then, there was another, then there was another comment. 
after that that was way more racially charged that then we started developing a dialogue with her about, right? And that happened in the middle of the restaurant. And as a team together, we all just kind of were like, wow, like this is a thing now? Like, wow, like really? Like, and, and that and being together in that moment and knowing that we were all in it for each other and had each other's backs, I think uh, could have been maybe more significant than being up on stage at some points. Because I remember that too. And I remember just being the anger of, uh, of being just exposed to such ignorance. You know? And such, like... Like, this lady had no idea. She didn't have any idea that she was, do, that saying, she was doing, saying or doing anything yeah, wrong. anything wrong. But, right. But that was just the way it was. What, what, aren't y'all... When we walked in at first, it was no. When we walked in at first, it was, aren't y'all, aren't y'all a group of... What did she say? She said Emily looked like she came off a soul train, but she said that... She called Jen a hippie. Yeah, she, the lady just flowers. the lady just went. Yeah, she was she was she <laughs> said, just went. Yeah, said Ebony, you look like you came yeah. off a soul train. Go, yep. Don't go dancing on the tables. Like yes. that's what she said to her. That's right. Yeah, that that moment, I think, and in that, what we learned about each other is that not one of us was a, willing to allow uh, that what all those comments to go unchecked. Not one of us was allowing allowing any of that to happen. Because this was a very diverse group of people. We had not Maybe just everybody. like racially, yeah. ethnically, sure. gender, sexual orientation, sure. like you name it. We, sure. we had everything. Yeah, we had America. Yeah. We had America, you know. Yeah. I and mean, we were missing some like, you know, some, some Asian Americans, right. and some Latinos. But, we, but we, had, we had a pretty good, it was, right. it, was, it was a good look. But we had, it was a good look. you know, Ted Vaca, yeah, sure. Hispanic. Yeah, 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 sure, 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 sure. African American. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only yeah. Jewish. Yeah. Katie Worsing. Of course. Lesbian. Like, we had yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, we had it. We had everything. Yeah, and you know? And this lady comes in with, like, all the stereotypes. Just all of them, yeah. yeah. Because we, she wasn't what we, she wasn't what she expected, you know. Or we weren't we what weren't she expected, expected, you know, um, to walk through her, her, her doors, you know, to her, her, her place of business. But I do remember all of us not, le- see, here's the thing about when stuff like that happens. Like, and you, you get in the car, and you're 20 minutes away now, and you wish you would have said something. You wish you would have stuck up. You wish you would have blah, blah. We didn't have that moment because we all got off yeah. our, our chest and let her know you're ridiculous. Ebony wrote her a poem, a poem. on a $10 bill. On a $10 bill, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> because her, on that tip, yeah. yeah. Her bill was like $9.80. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So she takes out a 10, writes a poem on it, Yeah. you go. Such nice a gangster moment. Yeah, and I, and that in that moment, like, it just, like, all of it, like, seeing that happen, it just, it solidified us. And, and we knew that we were in it for, for, with each other, that none of us was going to let the other one down, not just in poetry, but in like life, you know? And it was, it, that was a very special moment. So we go from Dallas to Austin. <laughs> and uh, what, what were your specific memories about those first couple of days, maybe those prelim bouts, like take me through what you remember? <laughs> uh, very nervous because this year there was an expectation. This year we had already owned so much of our regional competitions the word was out that you got to watch out for Merck these are poets that or you necessarily denver haven't seen time. yeah well or denver but we were the only slam poetry right. team so right. it was like watch out for denver watch out for the mercury cafe because right. we were denver at that point 
Um, and so, yeah, there was, a little, there was a lot of sizing people up. There was, you look at L.A., there was Javon doing his L.A. thing, you know, the little intimidation game kind of thing. There were some of the New York poets. Uh, shout out to Ovius Maximus, you know. Shout out to Ovi, you know. Uh, shout out to, uh, you know, Rachel McGibbons. Shout out to the, 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 the poets in the community that have, uh, I would say, good gamesmanship. I, I don't think that any of those poets who very much want to win and compete well, I never saw anything like torrid about what they did, you know, as far as the intimidation kind of stuff that they did or, you know, any of the, you know, the, the talking or the, the background noise. I thought it was good gamesmanship from people who, who, you know, had done this for a while, had won, you know, championships and, you know, been on TV and earned their name. I felt for them to even be, you know, talking or having some buzz about us, I thought that was cool. I was like, ugh. I was like, okay. And all that would culminate all in right. finals. Oh, because we went oh. against that. Because we went up against the, those names. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Roger Veneer yeah. Carr, yeah. like. But uh, so yeah, we had so to get through some. But we had to no to get to to get to that thing. Second prelim bout right here. Do you remember this uh, second prelim bout? Kind of. Again, oh, yes, New York. Oh, no, 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 yes. Because it was in that small little venue. And Yo. that place was standing room only. Standing room. People were just, it was hot in there. It, like, <laughs> it smelled like B.O. It was terrible. Because it was five teams. These five teams. Oh, I can, I can, run, you, I can run you right through that bout. Uh, yeah, talk about it. I can, I can, I, ooh, ooh, I got a story for you. Keep, keep talking. Okay, keep These going. These five teams were Denver, uh-huh. Albuquerque, uh-huh, uh-huh. we had Woo! Like, just Wars woo, with woo. That yeah, because like, I mean their team was. You're talking about Hakeem Bellamy. Yeah. You're talking. You're talking about those guys were Lee rock Francis stars. Lee Francis. I'm telling you. Oh my god. Oh J Lo. J Lo. New Yorkian was in that bout. Wait till okay. Delray yep. Beach. Oh, Delray. And Salt Lake City. And you're right. Denver had Fire. a buzz. Fire. And Albuquerque had just won the year before that. Yes, they Albuquerque. The they were the defending champs. Then you've got the New Yorkian Poets Cafe. That always. <laughs> They're gonna bring the heat. Yeah, my man. Rick, shout out to my man Rainmaker. Rainmaker was on that squad. That's my. Do- oh my god! Listen to what we're talking about here. All right. Uh, so here's a story about that particular bout. We had a poem called Uhuru. It's a performance piece that involved the entire team uh, that used the use of uh, both acoustics um, through percussions, through beating on our beating on our our, our legs, chairs. chairs, whatever we had. We had it set up to wherever whatever venue we were in. We were going to do some drumming, some while the poem was going on, right? And so we had planned, since we had this monster bout, we needed a monster piece for this. We said Uhuru was going to be that piece. What we decided to do almost uh, on site was we're going to do this particular poem, since this venue is so crowd crowded, from the middle of the audience. And not only that, we're going to stand on the chairs so that we're elevated above the rest of the audience, right? And it's just going to be big and grandiose. And so here's one thing about this piece. It's this very energetic clap, 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 clap. It's got the, the audience involved. It, it's, got, it's got a little bit of everything. It's got the, it's got the crowd walk. It's, it's got, got the, the repetition. It's got the repetition. It's got the, yeah, it's got the, you know, it's got, it's got the great refrain, you know what I mean? And so it's, it's just, it's a classic uh, 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 performance poetry piece, yes. right? It's a classic performance. That piece was specifically for performance, yes. right? There's a part in the poem where we go, stand up, 
blah, 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 stand up. And the whole point is to get people to stand up at the end. So we walk around and we grab audience members and actively physically make them stand up. The poem had so much energy in the room that the poets from the New Eurekan Poets Cafe stood up too. So they contributed to the energy of the piece that we had that propelled us to take the one in that bout, like we had also done in the bout before. After the bout was over, Mahogany Brown comes up to me okay. and says, I'm mad at y'all. Let me tell you why. You had my poet standing up for your poem. She told me that poem was so good, I had to pull my poets back down. Because they, they stood up and contributed to the energy of the poem that their competitors, us, had, had created in the room. And so to this day, Mahogany's still like, man, like that. I mean, not to say that that, that, that bout could have gone another way if Nuyo didn't stand up or whatever. But seeing the other poets get caught up in the energy of that poem may have contributed to why we had taken that bout and took the one in that bout. And that semis bout was not a guarantee. No, it wasn't. We, we had to come no. from behind. And yeah, as a matter of fact. Who, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Providence. Yeah, and Providence. I remember them being a problem. Because we were down by uh, to Austin after yeah. the first round. Oh, yeah. And then Austin Ken got Egos. Up and read yes. Four West. Four West. In the second round. Oh, my God. Yeah, and, and then just, just elevated. Yeah, just elevated. Yeah. And then Fences took it home for us. Oh, man. Yeah, and that, oh, that Fences. That was, but that semis about was far from a guarantee. No, not at all. There we, were no guarantees. We were sweating after that first round. Like, there, oh, no. There were no guarantees. Yeah. And then, like, our, our good friends, Omaha. We're in that bout. That's true. And they had no more poems left. They, they, they were out. They spent everything. They were out. Their, ta their, tank, their tank was empty. It was totally empty. Their so tank was empty. So they were just having fun. Yeah. I think like John Mark yeah. was just, oh, John he was probably Mark. three sheets to the wind before that yeah. Oh yeah, he started. was. I just talked to him recently too. Yeah, he's doing well. I miss John Mark. Hoosier! Shout out to the Hoosier. Yeah, Dan Lehman. Dan Lehman. Jesus had, Christ, uh, Dan. <laughs> They had the dark truth. Ah, yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, wow. He did that poem. I am that poet. I, I am that poet. That, yes. And yes. then they, he had the whole Omaha team like, That's right. joining in. Oh, man. That was like, once the sweating yeah. had stopped, that yeah. was a fun bout to be. It, it was. It but, was. But, man, we, we were like, oh, no. Yeah. Man, that's that's right. I remember now. Yeah. That, uh, that anticipation. That was, yeah, that was a really good year. Um, and then going into... Going into that final stage, I mean, they were just monsters. They were the monsters at the end of the book. Every last one of them was a Grover. That was absolutely insane. DC like, Baltimore. DC. Austin Neo Soul. <laughs> Louder Arts. Oh. Miami. Oh, Miami, yes! And Denver. Yes, yes. All, and all heavy hitters on oh those teams. God. like the, well, You already talked about Rachel McGibbon yes. and OV and Roger. They also yes. had Carlos Gomez Co on that's, team. And that's and my Marty guy. McConnell yes. on that team. Carlos like, that, is, is a, that is a superhero squad. That right is there. a superhero squad right there. Yeah. That, is, that is their version of, well, what's the opposite of the Avengers? That was Hydra. Okay, so that was Hydra. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that was Hydra. Because we were the Avengers, so <laughs> that was Hail Hydra. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, DC Baltimore had Chris August. Yeah, Chris August. Gail Danley. Oh, wow. Memory Lane. Dude. Joanna Hoffman. Wow. Who's made quite That's a right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Rhonda Taylor, Dwayne Dooley. Yep. Dwayne Dooley. Uh, Austin Neo. <laughs> oh, 
lost the they video. Just, they, they came with like they video. were they were really known for their group work, right? Almost as as much as we were. Like they, it was like, right. oh, what's Denver doing with their group work? What's Austin right. doing with, Do their with group theirs? Work? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then Miami also Miami. was really really good too at the same time. Um, they were fantastic. And we make the bold decision to go out with fences first round. That's right. Like everyone, that was a big conversation we had before them. Like, what are we going to kick off with? Do we do this? Do we do this? That's right. And then our our strategy was: if we draw late, we do fences. That's right. If we draw early, we do something different. I remember I wore my lucky T-shirt. I wore my uh, I wore my manga, my Japanese manga T-shirt. I did. You went. I wore, that was the I wore uh, that, yeah. Thundercats, right? Yeah, yeah. I wore I wore that uh, yeah I wore that T-shirt that uh, that that bout. I needed I I needed a little extra energy in there. That was uh, but the strategy yeah. paid off because we were way ahead after the that. Oh, and then and then we did and then we did press continue up there too, and then that it was, was just the third like thing. so. Yeah. Then we threw Katie and then Katie. Katie. Jordan asks things to me I don't know how to give when he says, Miss Katie, I want you to teach me to dance like those guys on MTV because I think my dad probably dances like them, and I always wanted to be just like my dad. So I spend the next hour teaching this little boy his father. Like a father is a history lesson and Jordan is sea walking all over his dad's past mistakes. I remember after uh, we, we realized that we had won, I, uh, I got really quiet. I, uh, I, I feel um, like in, in retrospect and thinking about it, it really, it kind of scared me um, at that point that uh, there was some kind of validation by our peers that what we had been doing, what we had been really working hard for, all year long, you know, we, we even started early um, too in our team selection so that we can get a jump. Remember on because uh, traditionally before then it was late, April, late, late, and that was early, April. late. I know we'd spent so much time, you know, and just having it validated, uh, it it really it, it hit me. It really it struck a it struck a note, it struck a chord with me. Um, a really strong one, and I think even still to this day, I can kind of channel that energy and that feeling um, that I had once the you know the trophy with the sword and the books, well, before you know, that, was hosted up. One one of my memories about that time, because I was like the the scorekeeper, timekeeper yeah. of of the team, yeah, because I was the most like yeah, yeah. disposable person at that time. So. The, the way that the format worked this particular year is that they did a random draw, high yeah. to low, high to low. High to low, high to low. And yeah. so that's why we yeah. went first in the yes. subsequent two that's right. rounds. That's right. And I knew as soon as we got the results back from Press Continue, which was yeah. the third round poem, yeah. that you guys had mathed everyone out. Out. And yeah. So we knew, that's the, right. Before that's the right. whole thing was even done, that's right. I go backstage, and I think you were the first person I saw. That's right. And I go up to you, and I'm like... You guys just won the National Poetry Slam. Yeah. And you told me, shut the, the F, F up. <laughs> Not even joking. Like, you were serious. That's you were what like, I said. Stop it's what I said. Right That's now. exactly like, what I said. That sounds like me. <laughs> I, I, couldn't, I couldn't hear it. I mean, at that point, I was just, I was overwhelmed with everything. With not only, so first of all, for, okay. So the Rogers, the Carloses, the OVOs, the Rachels. Those guys are heroes. To be able to share a stage with them, first of all, at that point, I felt like, how the hell did I end up doing this? How did I end up on this stage with legit rock stars? You know what I mean? And to be able to be in a competition against them and 
have a run, like have a chance at winning, whatever that means. You know, we all know whatever slam is, you know, but like having a chance to win and being in that moment, it meant, it meant, uh, it meant the world. It really did. It really did. And that's why I couldn't, I couldn't think outside of that. I couldn't think about winning and yada, 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 and all that. I just wanted to just, just be in that moment, you know, and, and live out what was a dream at that, at that point. You know, all the touring, all of the, all of the, the, the shows, all of the venues, the money getting thrown at our feet that year. You know, all of those things just leading up into that, 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 that moment. It just, it was, it was overwhelming. It was too much. And, uh, and beautiful at the same time. But I, I emotionally didn't know how to deal with it. So that's 2006. That is 2006. 2007. Well, yeah. a, a couple things happened couple in 2007. Things. couple things happened. Uh, we have the founding of Slam Nuba between 06 and 07. We cut heads. We did cut some heads. So tell me about... Um, what it took to get Slam Nuba up and working. Tell me about yeah. your role in, in the yeah. inner workings of all that. Tell me about yeah. like how that all came to be. Yeah. So uh, what ended up happening after we won uh, the championship in 06, uh, coming back and being on cloud nine and now being these, these uh, iconic figures in Denver uh, as far as the poetry community is now concerned, uh, I wanted more, you know, and in talking to other people, like I had, to, I don't know if you remember this, but I, for a long time, wanted Ken to turn Pretty Boys into a slam. I do remember that. I thought it could have been cool. I thought we could have been quirky and fun, you know, like in the same way, like a Kalamazoo, you know, or like, you know, no, seriously, like normal. some, you know, or normal, you know, like one of those like little quirky slams, you know, that do like fun, you know, like, like poetry, you know, and I thought that that could have been like really awesome. And Ken really didn't want that to happen. He wanted to keep pretty boys pure, which I also respected. I thought that was awesome. But I felt at that time that there were more poets that could represent Denver on a national level than were given the opportunity to really branch out and do their thing. Hence, the Theos and the Bobbies and the other, you know, other poets that started to float into the slam community at that point, um, including Jay Harris um, at the same time. Um, and so uh, I just thought, why don't we start another, can we start another slam? And without calling people's names out, because I don't want to do that. I don't want to do like that thing. There were people that told me um, that Denver didn't have more poets than the ones that were competing at the Merck on a national level. I got told that to my face. And me, and you know me, uh, looked said such person in the face and said, F that. <laughs> okay? Like, but not in, the, not in the, like, F that! Like, I love you F that way, but like, F that. Like, seriously? Like, how pretentious. No, we, that, we were very, very deep. You know what I'm saying? Oh man, poets just leaking. Just poets every like poets are just coming out of the woodworks. You know what I'm saying? And good quality quality work. work. Yeah, good work. People who hone their craft. Not just people who were involved with the team last year, but then you got the Matt Zambranos. You got the Jay Harris. You know what I'm talking? You know what I'm talking about? People who were starting to come into their own. own We'd see them at like the Barrio Slam. We'd see them at like the open mics. We'd see they may not get up Cafe Culture. Exactly. We'd see them and we'd hear them and be like, man, that. That would be fire on a, on a, on a poetry stage, right? So uh, I asked my sister, uh, what if we turn Cafe Nuba into a slam? It was just a question that I threw out there. 
out of this kind of frustration from a specific conversation that I had with someone in our community. And my sister said, Kathy Newbell already has an MPS registration. <laughs> we had one. She had one for years. She's never used it? Never used Did you not know this? No, I had no idea. Cafe Nuba had been a registered slam since 2000 and I want to say four or three. I never slammed though. It never. Was open Let me tell you why she did it. She had access to the MPS format and the website and she could look at when poets were touring she just and ask them. She used it to get features yeah. and to build relationships, yeah. which was brilliant. Yeah. Forget the competition. Let's build relationships with touring poets. Yeah. Let's, let's, build, let's build this venue and, like, and make it into something special. And she did. Cafe Nuba hasn't been repeated since. Something on that scale hasn't been repeated since. And it was at that point where I was doing more I became a steady host after Ebony stopped doing it as, as consistently. Right. I mean, I'm ingrained. I'm embedded in this stuff. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, and it, was, it was awesome. And I thought, well, why not? Well, the hell, if we already have the MPS registration, why not do it? So that's when, you know, Ashar then asked Ken, can you come in and help us with the organization of such, such things? Because Ken knew the inner workings of NPS. Right? And he was really tasked with finding a venue. Exactly. And so we had meetings. So we'd meet, um, I think we met, uh, what was that little bar called? The Red, Red Room? Yeah, the Red Room. Off Red Room. Yeah. yeah, we'd meet at the Red Room. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we'd meet at the Red Room and we'd have little meetings and decide how to like organize it and get it together. So Ken took on a lot of that legwork and then that legwork got uh, passed on to Susie Q, who then took on the mantle of Slam Master. Yep. You know, and which was first slam newster of Slam Nuba, yeah, you know, and it was fantastic, you know. And I remember that very first slam. It was over there at that venue that's just a couple blocks from the Merc. Um, I can't remember what it's called now. I think we did it and then took a little bit of a break. I don't think it was. I think we took a little bit of a break and then came back and did uh, the slams at at Exanthias. If my memory serves me correctly, but I can go back and look. Because I remember the only time I was in that bar uh -huh. before a slam movie event was you had a haiku death match. Yeah, we didn't use that bar that much. Yeah. That was just something that was almost like a little bit of a favor that was done for us that we could use that venue. Yeah, I remember SD yeah. was uh, DJing that night. Yeah, I remember that night really vividly. I was wearing my, my black Spider-Man t-shirt with uh, 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 it was just parts of Spider-Man in the negative space. Um, yeah, I can go back in my Facebook and look at that. That was crazy. Um, but anyways, so uh, got, yeah, so then, so then, new venue. so it's budding new venue, and then now we're recruiting. We're going out and we're trying to find as many poets as possible. There was a slam at DU, there's DU Slam, uh, where I had first seen Jay Harris slam for the first time, and that's when I extended out the invitation to her to come out and slam uh, for us too. That's also where Nietzsche Ward, where I met Nietzsche Ward uh, for the first time. She was slamming under the moniker of Original Woman. She came to us from... Charlotte? Yes. Yes. yes, she did from Charlotte. Yes, she, she absolutely did. She made a little did. bit of a name for herself in 05. She made the semifinal in Indy Slam. In Indy Yes, she made a significant name for herself. Yes. Yeah. And uh -huh. she moved to Denver from Charlotte. And yes, so she, she did. She had slammed at the Merck a couple times. Yes, she, she did. Gone to Nuba a couple times. Yes, she did. Yep, exactly. And so that was kind of like, and she was at that DU Slam too, so that was kind of a, a, a good place for us to do some recruiting. Um, because we were all kind of there at that DU. So that was a big DU slam. I think the prize for that was like 500 bucks uh, or something like that. I think I came in second or third. Maybe third. I think I came in third. I think Jay, either Jay won it or Jay came in second. Jay did really well. 
she killed that slam. Yeah. So anyways, it was a big pot, you know what I'm saying? So it was money to be made or whatever. So we, you know, uh, anyways. But more uh, it was like sowing seeds to recruit from Yes, to recruit. Yeah, I thought it was, yeah, it was awesome. And so like we all were recruiting at that point. And so um, bringing in those extra poets um, and then finally ending up uh, in the final venue that we had for quite some time, which was Blackberries right there uh, in historic Five Points in Denver, 25th in Washington, um, which is fantastic. Shout out to Brother Sudan who ran that. Blackberries was amazing. You didn't go there for coffee because he had his kids running a <laughs> running the register and running a, you know the espresso machine, and none of them knew how to make anything. <laughs> If you ask for a cappuccino, you got coffee with cream. If you ask for an espresso, you got coffee with cream. If you ask for tea, you got coffee with cream. <laughs> I remember I score kept and time kept. Yeah. That first team selection. That's right. Um, in fact, I remember not that. too long I remember, ago, I remember a couple that. months ago, I was looking through my DVD collection because uh-huh. my wife and I had just moved and we were uh-huh. doing inventory. You'll uh-huh. never guess what DVD I found. What DVD did you find? The 2007 Slam Nuba documentary. Is there a documentary? Yes, that Jay Harris made. Jay did make a documentary! Yes. <laughs> Macaulay Culkin face! <laughs> now, this year too was really interesting because I had made both teams. Yes. I also had qualified for yes. Mercury Cafe. I was the first poet to qualify to be on both teams and I had to make a decision. And a lot of people had thought that I, the foregone conclusion was that I was gonna go with Merck because we were the reigning champions. A lot of people, no one thought that I was gonna go to Nuba. And to be honest, I didn't know. I didn't make my decision until it was absolutely like the last day that I could make the decision. Um, Because I didn't know if I wanted to join this new adventure with new poets and start something new or did I want to continue on with Legacy and see if we couldn't repeat? So was that the, the, the final deciding factor for you, was to go with like the new the, it was and the new It was. Child. It was brand new. Because all of this was a new experience for me. All of this creative stuff was all brand new. And so I wanted to work with Bobby. I wanted to work with Theo. I wanted to work with Jay. You know, I was excited about in Original Woman at that point. I was excited about the team. And Bianca McCollum was your coach. And, Bian- and Bianca was our coach. Like, that was great, you know. And, and having Susie um, involved as well. Like, that was, that was huge. But that was, man, that year, that was a very interesting year, too. That, that'll lead us back into uh, dips in Dallas, too. We'll Talk go to back you. into that. Do, do you know the story, or do, or do I have to? Oh, I, we'll get I, to it. No, I was, you pulled me into a van that year. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You remember. Okay, right? You remember how mad I was? You and Bianca were, like, livid. You were, she was on the verge of tears, and you were, like, vibrating. Like, but tell me from your perspective. But So well, let's, let's backtrack, though, backtrack. a little bit first and, and go back to... Um, so you roll with a four-person team. You, Bobby, Jay, Luce. That's it. We, we rolled We rolled thick in that year. And there were... So a couple things of note from yes. that year. Um, yes. You turned Ring into a duet with you and Theo. Yeah. Tell me about that. Ring was a piece that I actually wrote for Podslam. Um, and it was a piece uh, that I had wrote after the passing of Coretta Scott King. Um, and so the piece was very important. It was an identity piece. It was an IM piece. Uh, but it was a piece in which I have to give a shout out to Ebony Isis Booth. If we're talking about the influences um, of the people around us. Ring, I felt, was a very strong poem, but it wasn't strong enough for Isis. 
uh, the previous year. And I remember uh, in the editing process of the poem, uh, building with her on one of our many writing sessions. You know, we all, uh, with the poets, we all would get together and like we'd get together, like two of us or three of us would meet at a coffee shop, you know, like at, at any time of day. And we'd like build and bounce ideas, you know, and off of one of those, uh, one of those times with Ebony, I remember her telling me that the poem didn't have any bite at the end. It needed something to drive home all of those like really wicked, horrible, hard things that I was bringing up in the poem. And I, uh, I thought about it and thought about it and couldn't really come up with anything. And then I was, I was out with uh, friends and one of my buddies had used the N-word, not in a negative way, but just in a way that's like, oh, you know what I'm saying? Y'all tell that, you know, tell that N-word, blah, 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 you know, whatever. You know, and uh, I thought about it and I was like, man, why do we use that as such a common, like, you know, it's something that, a question that we all, you know, black men of color, especially black people, you know, people of color, ask ourselves sometimes, you know. Some of us have accepted that word as part of our, uh, our lexicon as just a, you know, it's just a, it's, a, it's a term of endearment or it's a way to show frustration or whatever else, you know. Or a shared experience. Exactly. And so in, in, in thinking about that, I was like, man... We could substitute that with so many other words, but we just, we use that N-word so, 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 so loosely. I decided to put it in the poem. It clicked. And so one of the last lines in that poem, I changed because of Ebony. And that line is, I feel more comfortable in calling you my nigga than I do in calling you my brother. I feel more comfortable in calling you my nigga than I do in calling you my brother. Uh, yeah, so, so uh, this, this poem ring starts to really come to fruition, it starts to, to form. Yes, and then uh, got turned into a duet uh, with Theo for that year and just became a beast of a poem. Just became a poem that had so much energy, so much power that it, uh, it did very well for us in every competition that we did. So now that year with Nuba, I do distinctly remember we did not lose any competitions. That year, except for, except for Nats, which, you know, we came in fourth uh, in every other competition that we did, uh, every regional comp, whatever we did, 40 ounce, all that stuff, we, we, we won. And that, that felt really good with a group of poets where I was the only experienced slam uh, poet on that team. Everyone else was first year. Everyone else was rookie, rookie, rookie slammers, you know. And, uh, you know, we, we did it right. We balled out that year. Well, the other big poem was that yeah. Grandmother Speaks poem. My grandmother has the spinal column of a coal miner. Walks like everywhere beats home. Her lips speak battleship symphonies and stands like a deacon. She's no stranger to tears. She still makes the sign of the cross when passing by Catholic churches, even after a million and answered prayers. Her dedication has taught me faith. My grandmother speaks like she has a gun in her lap. And, and, and Grandmother Speaks. all four of you. It was... It was yes. very highly choreographed. It was visually very unlike anything that you would see at a National Poetry Slam at that time. And it was intentional. Yeah. The, the intention behind that was taking everything that I had learned from the previous year, including the choreography that we had used with fences, exactly, the locking of the arms, man, 
that inspired me to the point where it's like we have to do something really creative and innovative with that and so we kind of combined like this whole uh, mannequin challenge kind of thing where we were frozen in these spots to then creating these very vivid forms one of which being this uh, throne that uh, Theo and I created for Jay Harris to sit on. The rocking chair. The rocking chair. So like it was just so regal and so powerful uh, visually that I just remember anytime we did that, that piece and at that moment, audible gasps coming out from the crowd. Just, oh, you know, like, oh, ooh. Like, you know, and, like, and it would be hard, like even like performing that piece to not react with the crowd because part of that was being disengaged and being a piece of furniture and not engaging with the crowd to take away from the uh, fantasy that we had created of creating this, 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 this piece of furniture. Well, and to keep the focal point on Jay Harris at that point. And her. Like if you were so, had broken or engaged the crowd. Exactly. That was very difficult. So every time you take a look at that, that piece, every time we did it, um, it was very intentional that our heads were down and away from the crowd, not making eye contact. All, everything about that particular poem was intentional. That even to where we stood and how we stood, Bobby came from a theater background too. So his input was very influential in how the, the, the sequencing, the arrangement of all of that went. So having those extra components and those new fresh set of eyes couldn't have been better for us, especially with the energy that was involved. And that's what led us to be so successful um, that particular year. So you already talked about 40 ounce, you take it. Yeah. What happened to dips? A couple of things happened to dips. Uh, one thing of note uh, that uh, upset uh, me, kind of especially, was interaction with a poet uh, by the name of uh, Colin Gilbert. Um, Texas poet. Yeah, yes. Texas poet. He uh, had felt uh, comfortable enough to approach me at one point in front of a lot of other poets and accuse me of writing all of the poems for Slamdula. He pissed me off so much with that statement. We had worked so hard as a team to build everything together. Now, so you, you know me and you know how I interact in a slam environment, right? Am I, am I more of a solo me, 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 me kind of guy? Throw my poems up, I got y'all. I'm this, that, and the next, or am I, man, how can we beast this together? Like, how can we like... Team first. I love that. I love that about Slam. I always have. And so all of the work that we did to be accused of, one, cheating, first and foremost, no one played by the rules more than, than us. Which, which will come into play later It on will come. The final stage. stage. Oh, yes, it will. The great, the great yes. final stage debacle. Yes, yes. No one played. I, I loved playing by the rules because I felt like if you won by cheating, you didn't really win. If you, really, if you got to pull out all this extra crap in order to win in something that's supposed to be fun anyways, then what does it all mean, you know? And so sticking to the rules uh, was very, very important, um, especially to me. And uh, our team just worked hard and just negating all of the hard writing that Jay, Bobby, Theo, and I did together, I thought was 100% uh, corny. I thought it was sour grapes. And I know exactly what he said to me. I know, exa I know almost word for word because I was so mad. He, uh, he walked up to me 
And uh, Katie Worsing was standing right there, too. And Katie Worsing had to listen to all of this uh, going on. Uh, he said, yeah, congratulations. I was like, yeah, thanks. And then he kind of looked me up and down. He went, huh. And you know, you know him, and he's got a certain kind of swagger that you know might be akin to like a Justin Timberlake. At that point, I don't want to talk bad about people, but you know what I'm saying? Kind of like, you he know, had, he had a little brazenness, a little young yeah, cockiness. Yeah, 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 yeah. Shout out, shout out to Colin. Yeah, that, that I'm. I don't want to speak for him because right. I, I haven't talked with him in many a year, but I'm pretty right. sure he is a different person today. I'm sure he is. Back. I'm sure I'm a different person, so I, I hope that he is too. You know what I'm saying? And so he said. And he looked at me, and then he said, uh, huh, different year, different team, same style of poems. Choreography's kind of the same, too. Huh. And then I looked at him, and I was like, and then I looked at him, and I was like, what are you saying? I didn't, honestly, I was like... I was in another space. Like, I'm feeling good. Like, I got all my friends around. You know, my buddy, my, one of my best friends in life, Damon Green, had, uh, had driven up with his wife to be there, you know, for us at that particular bout. You just so I got my people. We just, yeah, we, we want all the guac, all the guac, you know what I'm saying? We got this big old thing of guacamole, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, we, we, we yeah. We, we did that. Uh, speaking of which, I still have that trophy. <laughs> that bowl. That I have the bowl. I have that bowl with the plaque that says Slam Nuba. I have that. Yeah. But anyways, um, he insinuates this thing without directly saying it. And then I said to his face, are you saying that I, I, I do all the writing? Are you, are you accusing me of something? And he looked at me up and down. And he, didn't, he, he just kind of went, hmm, Maybe. And I was like, why are you... And then I remember just almost that same face I just made right now. I was like, why are you so mad? Like, what's wrong? Like, out of nowhere. And up until that point, I thought we were cool. I had no idea that he was, like, feeling this way or mad or whatever. But then again, Slam brings some things out of people, just like any competition does. Just like basketball, just like football, foosball, poker, whatever else. People get hurt feelings off of stuff, especially when it comes to losing. Especially it's something you think that you're good at. And so I remember getting very close to a possible physical altercation right. with him. And at that point, Bianca, like, was my ace. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I vented to her, like, all the time. And we were very close, you know what I'm saying? And we opened up to each other, and I felt like talking to her and letting her know what was going on was, was really important, too. She wasn't in that conversation. It was Katie Worsing. It was him, me, and then other poets that were floating around listening to what was happening and then being like, yo. And I remember, I don't know who pulled me away, but it was bad. And that, that really stuck in your craw. That, that really did affect not just you, but Bianca. The whole team. It, it really put a chip on the shoulder of Slam Nuba. Because then you were like, let's do other people And do other people feel this way? Yeah. Do other people feel this? And looking way? back there, like even even through the lens of history, like you 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 talk about the people on that team. You had writers on that team, like very good. You had just writers. massive indies, like Bobby with his two tongues piece. Theo was like doing we, his thing. We like, had college educated, yeah, creative. You had, you had writers on that team. Writers, you know, people that you know may have just found slam, but have been writing creatively their entire lives, you know? And so the insult was, it's, it was a little unbearable. You know, and you know how slam goes. Once you get stuck or painted with a particular brush, that sticks with you. 
If your team does something wrong or blah, 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 that stigma sticks around. It's a lot, it's a lot harder to get that stink off in slam than, uh, than you'd think. You know, certain teams are pegged as, oh, that's the team that blah, blah, blah. That's the team that blah, blah, blah. And so now you kind of, you turn that into fuel and you use that at the National Poker Slam. Yeah, and we went in. You went in. But, we went going in. back to, you follow the rules. So there was a bit of a miscommunication with the rules for that year. Tell me about this miscommunication. Yeah, so, not well, miscommunication, oversight, whatever you want to call it. We didn't know that you couldn't repeat any of your poems on final stage. So we went through our competitions burning all of our best pieces to make it there. We felt like we could make final stage with the momentum that we had from all the competitions we had been winning during the year and the hard work that we had put in, the practice, the hours, the sleepless nights, the, 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 the performing and, and uh, 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 practicing at everyone's homes. So, um, so you burn through all We burn through the heat. We burn through the, the rings, the, you know, all the, the very strong poems. Yeah, all of that it. stuff. Yeah. All, the, all the good indie stuff. Everything that we had. Uh, I even did, I, even did, I, had, I had a poem uh, uh, on, on consumer, uh, consumerism. Um, at that point, you know what I'm saying? Like we burned through like all like the, our politically charged, strong poems and we made it to final stage. And that night before we found out that we couldn't repeat poems. That night we had some conversation as to what's going to happen um, on that final stage since we can't repeat. How do we represent everyone on stage? We don't have a four person group piece that we can put up. All we have left as far as group work is concerned, is a duet that Luce and, and, uh, Bobby. and Bobby had that I hated. It is well documented that I hate that poem because I find it chauvinistic, I find it paternal, I find it, I find it bad, I find it just a bad poem. Chromosomes. It's called Chromosomes. Chromosomes. You can probably find it if you look hard enough out there. Oh, it's out there, it's on YouTube. Yeah. It's on YouTube, yeah. I don't, it, it's not, I don't, I don't like it. And I, and I love, I love Bobby to death. Bobby knew, I, none of this is not public knowledge. Bobby knew that I hated that poem and I didn't want that poem on final stage. But you had nothing left in the inventory. If we wanted to represent everyone on final stage, because we got there as a team together. Now keep in mind, that particular year, Jay had lost a family member and still decided to slam with us. I think for her own well-being, she, she, put, she sacrificed in order to be on that team. In order for all of us to be up on that stage, it would have meant that Jay would have had to do a solo piece. Jay's pieces didn't sound like the traditional slam pieces. They sounded more like the kind of poems you would have heard at like the Casbah, per se. Very much from the heart, very impassioned, very urban if you're gonna put that in air quotes hip-hop influence um, she's park hill yeah. very uh, and shout uh, out to jay harris newly new mom oh. new mom oh my god <laughs> you know what i mean like that's oh. but a lot just of beautiful couplets, soul yeah a lot of, exactly yeah very, not not something that you hear frequently on a slam poetry stage like a vacuum, I consume your positive and your negative energy and use it as my muse. Allowing it to push me to work harder like I got something to prove. Striving for victory and refusing to lose because failure is not 
an option. It was almost about, uh, I don't know, an hour and a half, maybe two hours before we actually had to go, you know, prepare for final stage that uh, the rest of the team said, yeah, Jay's, Jay's gonna hit that stage. Jay's gonna get up there and hit that stage, you know? And then I was like, okay, cool. And so uh, it was set up that I would have a slot, Jay would have a slot, Bobby and yep, and and Luce would do uh, would do chromosomes, which I was against. But it was the only way to get all four people on stage. Only way to get all of us on stage because we had burned through all our poems because we didn't know that there was a no repeat clause that particular year. We didn't know that because the rules had changed. The rules had changed rules every had changed. previous years. You could repeat and bring your best work. I still think that that was a crappy decision because it made for a, a worse show. Yeah. So now everything that got these amazing, all the amazing poets that were going to be on the stage, including New Eurekan Poets Cafe that was there, you know, even though they had great poems, like I felt like some of their best work didn't get represented because they had some amazing work that year. You know what I mean? I remember Roger read just a ridiculous poem on yes. the stage and got lowballed. Lowballed. Like, that score was lowballed. Yes. It was like so outside. I remember that too. <laughs> I remember that too. Yeah, it was absolutely crazy. Yeah, and so like all all teams were scrambling because a lot of teams had burned through some of their best work in order to get to that point because of the no repeat clause. But we had overlooked it. And when I say we, and here's the thing about that, a lot of blame got put on Susie's shoulders. I'm just going to be honest. I'm going to throw that out there. I never blamed her. That was something for all of us because we all were in those emails from MPS. We just chose not to read the fine print. Because I remember watching your semis bow. Mm -hmm. I remember you doing your grandmother speaks poem and mm -hmm. thinking, what are they going to do on, on final, final stage? stage? And we had that conversation too. Yeah, you came off and like, that was great. Uh -huh. What are you going to do tomorrow? Uh -huh. like, what are you talking, what are you talking about? about? <laughs> <laughs> we're doing that tomorrow. Like, no, you're not. No, you're not. Which also led us to a conversation about, well, what if we just DQ ourselves, but put our best work up there? That was part of the conversation. Which Some people have asked, did you guys ever have that conversation? We most certainly did, but we didn't want to DQ ourselves. We wanted to see how we could place and didn't want to like have an asterisk by our name. So we, we did have that conversation about DQing ourselves, but we didn't. And you ended up taking fourth overall. We took fourth, yeah, overall, yeah. yeah. Which, I mean, a lot of can, there were a lot of factors that led into that, too. I mean, New Eurekan Poets Cafe, they had their mics go out on stage on them. Because the guy was checking his email. Exactly. Oh, my God. That got a guy beat up. <laughs> <laughs> that got a guy beat up. <laughs> you act like I'm lying. That low-key, low like, that got a guy beat up. Well, he got called out from the stage. Oh, yeah, and much worse. Yeah. And it, was, it wasn't your typical, like, let mm -mm. me overcome this with volume because mm -mm. it was a microphone off the stage. Mm -mm. And if the mic is out, mm -mm. then there is literally no... Anything like there are long pauses of and, silence, and here's the importance. Uh, here's the importance of that particular piece too. That piece that Nuyo was putting up was a piece by a Muslim woman who had a very powerful piece about her voice. That whole poem was about her voice, and her voice got cut off, literally on literally stage. Taken away. And so there's another part of the story that I'll get to here once I get back to that part. It has to do with the poem and with Scott. Okay. And with the decision that I made on stage, all right? So with that particular uh, point in time now that we're like, okay, what do we do on stage? I, uh, the team wanted me to do Scott. I kind of wanted to do Scott because they had heard it because we'd been practicing with it, but I had only used it like once before in a competition. 
and I was I, I it still was still very raw to me so I didn't feel like 100% confident with it but because of the support of the team I felt like okay I can put that up on the stage for me personally Jay Harris uh <sighs> gave, I think, a beautiful performance of one of her pieces. It was impassioned, and you could see the emotion on her while she was spitting it. Didn't get too caught up in the moment. I think she handled everything with grace, only she, like a real true Park Hill G could. She definitely channeled Park Hill. You know what I'm saying? She, she did, didn't she? It was flowing through her. It was, <laughs> and I saw, I saw it, and I, I was backstage like, you, 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 go girl, you go girl. I brought back that old Martin Gina, you go girl. Like that was just she. She she did exactly what I what I would have wanted to see her do on stage. Right. Chromosomes, not so much. Chromosomes was the first poem you guys threw up. It was because it was the, the only group piece, and, yeah. and then you went last. And then I went last. And sometimes when people aren't listening to me, I feel like shouting at the top of my lungs. You're not listening. I'm taking my ball and going home. Sometimes I feel like people only listen when I'm being destructive so I speak with a poison in my tongue and choke on my own cries for help. <laughs> when you're alone, your intestines feel like a wet sailor's boat. Scott, they don't understand people like us. Why small things mean so much. You made an interesting performance choice. Is this what you were trying to get to? Uh, at the very end, you decide to unplug the microphone. So I did something that hadn't been done on stage before by, uh, by taking the mic off stage after I completed my piece because my piece was also about people not having their voice being heard, right? And about taking your ball. And, and taking home. your ball and going home. And so that very last line, you know, I guess I'll just take my ball and go home. And I unplugged the mic and took the mic with me off stage Backstage, only a few people know this. The young Muslim woman whose mic had gone off uh, on the performance just before us, I gave her the mic. And I told her that mic belonged to her. And she was crying backstage. Like, she, that piece was a very important piece to her, and it was ruined. Even though they let her come back out and redo the piece, remember? They did the, the victory lap thing, right? It wasn't, it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same. Well, yeah. And it was very upsetting. It was very upset to all the poets involved. She took that mic and I told her to take it and it was hers and she did. And it caused such a stir because the stage manager was like, okay, we need that mic back. What mic? That's her mic. I don't have the mic. <laughs> I don't have the mic. I don't know where it went. So they were short a mic and then they had to go and find another mic because of that, because the mic, I told her that is your mic and she took it and went back into the green room with it. So they were short a group of mic four group pieces, and there's still competition going on. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And they were short of mics, so they had to go and grab another mic because they asked me, where's the mic? I was like, I don't know. I literally said, I don't know. Because we were all backstage. It's the beautiful thing about when you get backstage to like performances and like something happens on stage or whatever. If you were backstage at MPS 2007, you'd have seen all the poets just like, just bullshit, you know, for what they did to Nuyo. Unacceptable. And that's where the competition gets thrown out and the community comes in. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't want to forget beating your team or even competing with your team. You didn't get to read your poem. And that's why we're all here. I, I wanted to hear it. You know what I mean? Like, I, I wanted to be a part of this, something special, and not have another person's voice silenced 
because some asshole decides to not do his job. So that was a that was a moment, and that was another bonding moment with Nuyo. Another Nuyo. Nuyo and Denver have had some moments, man. We've had some moments. The 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 the, the camaraderie between the New York Poets Cafe and Denver, Colorado, whether you're Mercury or whether you're Slam Nuba, there is love that has been spread there. Dude, just all kinds of love, all kinds of love and camaraderie. And it's been a beautiful ride, you know. Ken and I got to tour the country and make a living as working poets and make a very successful living. Uh, you know, some of the first to do it the way that we did it too, as a poetic duet um, doing that. A lot of poets had done the collegiate market, but not as a group. Right. Ever. Like, that was us that opened up that door. And now that's, that's all that – they're pitching that all the time now at, uh, at NACA events. And NACA stands for the National Association for Campus Activities, right, right? where um, buyers come in from colleges and they book talent for their year, yeah. uh, for their school year. It's basically a marketplace for – It's exactly what it is for, for talent, college, for anything, for anything. college talent, for campus activities. So all student activities boards, any SCAB, any CAB, any of those, you know, they would send – their kids, basically 18, 19-year-old kids, to these big conventions all around the country with budgets in the hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy talent for the year. You guys want to have Shrek 4 on your campus next year? Here you go. Here's a budget to buy it from Pixar so you guys can you know, play it or whatever. You guys want Ben Affleck to come and say, I'm Batman, for like just five minutes? We've got money for you. You know what I mean? So exactly. So Ken and I... Had a very, very, very successful run that actually stemmed from that 06 final stage because our agent was in the audience as a representative of his own agency called Layman Lyric Productions. And he saw us do Press Continue and he was like, I can make you guys money. And then after that, it was, it was magic. It was uh, at least seven straight years of being on the road tough, super tough, and performing in every state except for Alaska and Hawaii. Yep. Ken and I have performed and stayed in every state, some of them more than others, in this entire union. And that's a blessing. Like, I don't know, like, who can say that? Like, I've performed at Yale, right? You know, I've performed at Rutgers, you know? Like, we're talking about big schools. Like, they're, they're you know, Georgia Tech. How do you perform at Georgia? How do you do poetry at Georgia Tech? And then small state schools and tech colleges, vocational schools, all across this country. We've killed Min I love Minnesota. I love so, Minnesota. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump yeah. to the end because we've been going for a little while. Yeah, we have. Um, I'm crazy. gonna ask you the same question I, I ask everyone, the same last question. Yes. So you walk along the beach. Yeah. Find a magic lamp on the beach. Take it out, you rub it three times, Magic Genie pops out and says you have one wish have for Denver poetry. What is your one wish for Denver poetry? To never win another national title. Why is that? It, it, for me, it ruined, it ruined the scene. I don't know if it's, I don't know what the scene is like now, all that much, but I think the success of the scene um, got in people's heads. There were arguments that happened online, on Facebook, Twitter, between good people who I won't open up other wounds, but like stuff that like tore the scene in half. And all because of the success. All because of success. Because Nuba has won another national title in 2011. Yeah. And from what I can tell, 
didn't have that same kind of fallout. Didn't have that same kind of public no. tearing apart. I, I don't. I would disagree. And part of what I'm talking about is what happened between Susie Q and Dominique. Mm-hmm. And you think that stems exclusively from success? Success in competition. I think in success in people thinking that all of this is a lot bigger than it actually is. It's not. It's a lot smaller. It's about us, the poets. Who are poets? Who are these people that we're talking about that slam? Are these the kids that grow up kind of isolated? Bullied, maybe? Maybe their notebook or their journal is the only thing that they had to talk to? By and large, I feel that their voices have been silenced or they've not been heard. Isn't that who we're really talking about? Yep. Right? End of the day? End of the day? And then there's some people who are just like, you know, I can use this to get popular or I can do this because somebody else is doing it and blah, blah, blah. There's that. But that, I feel like those people are few and far between. I feel like they're a very small, a very small portion of what our community looks like. And so I think that that success that we had affected people in a way that tore relationships apart. I was just talking to another young poet uh, who, I won't, I won't call out any names, but slammed for a minor disturbance and asked this young poet, uh, how come they hadn't been slamming too? How come you walked away? They said the same thing to me. Just that the success had the, the, caused a rift. That success getting to people's heads, that all of the whatever that all of this comes with just ruined part of the scene for them too so is that what ultimately led you to stepping away was that like you you felt that you forged these really strong bonds with people Mm -hmm. and then over seemingly inconsequential things or things that could have at least been worked out or talked through Mm -hmm. ended up tearing those bonds I think in part I think that there were some things that were intentionally done so the 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 relationship that I have with Theo, with Lucifuri now, um, is is not a good one, you know? And all of that stemmed from the idea of success and winning a national title. I just, as far as the experience that I had with Denver Slam, I wouldn't, honestly, I wouldn't change a thing, even the bad stuff. I think it helped me grow as a human being, too, at the same time. But I do feel like the success ultimately, I think, tore apart a lot of good bonds and relationships and friendships that people had that I think were a lot deeper than the competition, but the competition was allowed to dictate something. It's a tough thing, because how else could you foster that kind of community? How else could you foster that kind of... Yeah, engagement, engagement and, and yes and bring out the new best energy and bring and I know how, isn't that crazy without the competition like, but isn't that crazy though yeah. it's like success but think about your favorite musicians think about your favorite athletes as soon as they get successful nine times out of ten whatever that art is that they have mastered it suffers in some way shape or form right look at Kanye Right? Some people think Kanye hasn't made a good album in eight years, to be honest. Right? Well, well I'm going to let you Some finish, people. But 
Yeah. I think we're going to sign off on that note. Okay. So, Anything yeah. you want to plug or shout out before I turn off the recorder? Uh, yeah, I just want to shout out uh, Art Street at the Youth Employment Academy uh, to where I work. Um, and uh, all the young people that I see on a daily basis, they inspire me to come and work hard. Um, yeah, I just want to shout out, you know, my coworkers, uh, Chelsea Romanello and my boss, Amy Banker. I want to shout you out. Uh, thanks for reaching out and uh, asking me to do this. This is really awesome. I can't wait to hear it. And, uh, yeah, man, Denver poetry is honestly, it's my favorite scene in the country. It always has. And even though I walked away from it, I still know who's doing stuff. I know who's doing what. You guys may not, you may not see my face, but I'm around. Yeah. Like I said, I just, you know, one of my favorite kids, Micah Martinez, you know, I've sent him to the Mercury Cafe just within the last month and a half, two months, and he's fallen in love there. And so that's, uh, that's real. You know, that doesn't die. You know, shout out to anyone that's ever bought a chapbook from me, downloaded a, a song or a, uh, or a poem. And, and thank you. Thank you, Denver. Another fantastic interview in the books for the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. Uh, for those just brand new tuning into us, I tried something a little different with this interview. I know that uh, someone like like Soweto, like Panama, hasn't been really in the public eye for a number of years, and so when he, when he makes reference to poems, or when I made a reference to a poem in that interview, some of you might not have known what we were talking about, so I put some cuts of different poems that he was referencing or of different uh, people that he was referencing and their poems to help give you a little bit of context. So I hope that helps uh, round out the interview for you. I hope that helps give you some context if you didn't have it before, and I hope it just made it a better listening experience for you. So that once again, huge, huge thank you for Panama Soweto, our interview this week. And now we're going to get into the recap of events. We're going to start off with the Mercury Cafe. <laughs> Denver. 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 Queen City of the Plains. Lift high our spirit. Sing well our praise. For in you we live and are loved. Your Sunday Night Slam at the Mercury Cafe began with an open mic, as it usually does. We had the full complement of eight poets. Those poets were Lindsay Thomas, uh, Passion, which was actually a duet. They had one poet get up on the stage and a dancer uh, do freeform dance to the poetry. It was really, really cool. Then we had Connor S., followed by Angela Nicole, then Puck Lone Wolf, Johnny Johnson, Kira Fellows, and Connor Marvin. I've only got a couple of clips to share for you. Uh, first up, we're going to give you a mainstay of the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. I want to talk to you a little bit about Angela Nicole, because Angela has just been absolutely killing it with the writing game these last couple of months. Uh, you can tell she has definitely put some work in. She is definitely uh, refining her craft, honing her skills. And here is a clip from the poem that she read on the open mic. Pull your heart out and slit your wrist on stage because the bathroom just doesn't have the audience your ego craves. This can all be overwhelming. Angela Nicole tackling the more controversial, the darker side of slam with this piece. Uh, this particular clip, uh, Slit Your Wrist on Stage because uh, Bathroom doesn't have the audience or ego craves, was just a small snippet of a, a much larger contextual piece where she addresses things like how the competition can get the better of a person or how uh, applause in general can become addictive to not just poets, although that's what this poem was about, but to any kind of performer, to a musician, to a comedian, how if you do it 
long enough or if you do it for those specific types of reasons that type of feedback can really become an addiction for you and you know your ego craves it It, the the bathroom doesn't have the audience that that ego needs you need to go up on stage but this also brings about a lot of the negative side of things like slam where you hear the same poems week after week if you are a regular audience member or if it gets to this point poets have a tendency who do this to re-traumatize, re-trigger themselves with the poems that they read week after week because to them it's better to do that and get that audience response and get that validation, those high scores, than it is to keep opening those same old wounds. So Angela Nicole just absolutely killed it on this open mic. The other clip I'm going to play for you is from Connor Marvin. Uh, This sounded to me, this this read to me, like it was a series of images, as Connor Marvin is wont to do. There wasn't a whole ton of narrative thread in this one, but Connor Marvin is one of the best at creating a series of images and really painting a picture for the audience. So here's a clip from Connor Marvin's open mic piece. We locked and loaded, we questioning prayers, vineyards of bolt-action dreams, dragons of a crosshair, misfits of flintlock, split-stitch mercury in our fists, tossed, stomped onto the sidewalk, walking, talking, god machines. Now this device is not new to the open mic, it's not even new to this podcast. I've talked about people who just get up on the open mic and, and spit off a series of images with no particular thread, and I'm usually not a fan of it. And in that context, this was certainly not my my favorite Connor Marvin poem, but the way that Connor does this, the way that he layers these images, like I said before, it really does paint a picture in the audience's mind about what he is describing. And even though there's not a whole lot of contextual narrative going on here, there is a whole lot of just really vivid imagery. There's a whole lot for the audience to kind of sink their teeth into with this poem. And so I thought this would be a good example of how to do this type of poem well. Uh, A lot of people get up there and as an intellectual exercise, they'll just write off a bunch of images. And it's more like uh, playing language. It's more like seeing what they can do and and what sounds cool and and what fits together. But Connor Marvin does that, and I think he takes it one step further because of the richness of what he is trying to say. Because of how he is layering these images on top of each other. It might have a bit of a disconnect to some parts of the audience, but there's other parts of the audience that will get a whole lot out of it. So that was Connor Marvin on the open mic. Next, we're going to talk about your slam. We had eight slammers in this slam with your sacrifice. Your sacrifice was Paula Rose. Then we had a returning champion. We had Jamon Hill. We haven't seen him in a couple of weeks, but whenever he comes by, it is always a treat. Uh, we had Cameron and then Meta. Although not the same meta that is on the Slam Nuba team, this this other poet actually is a, a young poet out of the Cherry Creek School District, and she absolutely did great. I found out during the course of the Slam that she won the Cherry Creek District Slam, and so she was trying her hand at the next level by coming to the Mercury Cafe, Cafe and she did phenomenal. She did really great. After meta, we had Tim Farley, and then Michael. We had Jess Nieberg. Piper Mullins, and Jill Carno in that first round. I've got a couple of clips for you to play. First of all, I've got to give it up to Jamon Hill, who came in and with the very first position, came in doing first overall, not only got the highest score of the night, but your host, that would be me, brought back the time-honored huzzah. Now, for those who don't know what that means, 
What we used to do back when I first started going to the Mercury Cafe was whenever a poet would get up there and just absolutely destroy a room, just like say the most crazy, the most poignant, the most like life-changing type of poem to the audience and the audience just could not handle themselves, they couldn't control their response afterwards, then the host would count up to three. They'd go one, two, three, and then the audience throws up their hands and they all yell huzzah at the same time. And this only happens for... Those special kinds of poems, those those really rare kinds of just magical poems. So not only did Jamon Hill go first overall, not only did he get the high score that first round, he got a huzzah for his poem in the first round. When the white girl says, cash me outside, how about that? She is dropping hard consonants in order to sound harder, to sound tougher. She is creating a caricature of black identity built on negative stereotypes. Now, the thing I love about Jamon's poetry is that it is all the best that slam poetry can do. Uh, it is a terrific example of what slam poetry is capable of doing. It is narrative. It is understandable. It connects to the audience. But it doesn't shy away from big, complex themes. Jamon talks a lot about race relations. He talks a lot about language. He talks a lot about masculinity. He talks a lot about his own experience, but he makes that own experience more universal for the audience, and he does all of this throughout the course of one single poem. That references the Cash Me Outside Girl, and that is absolutely the epitome of what a slam poem is capable of doing. It is the best of what we have to offer, and that's probably why Jamon got the huzzah, got the high score, set a really, really high standard right from the number one position. The next clip I will play you is from Meta. I've already talked her up before on this podcast. She came in just really nervous, didn't know what to expect, but just full of, of talent. So here's a clip from Meta's first round poem. I'm yelling because peaceful protesting gets you arrested. I'm yelling because having your hands up gets you murdered. I'm yelling because wearing a hoodie gets your parents on a podium defending your character. Now it should be noted for clarity's sake that Meta is in high school. Uh, I didn't catch her actual age, but I'm figuring somewhere around 17, 18 years old. Won the Cherry Creek School District Slam, came up to the Mercury Cafe, wanted to try her hand, at the next level, at a more weekly slam, and absolutely just did great. Uh, one thing I really liked about this poem was the repetition, the use of I'm yelling because, I'm yelling because, and that really allowed her to dig deep into the theme she was talking about, this this idea of race relations between uh, people of color and the police, people of color, and the media, Rachel Dolezal, uh, Freddie Gray, Eric Garner, she can pack a lot into this poem with that repetition, and it all absolutely flows and connects with the audience. So great, great job, Meta. I hope you keep on coming back. The next clip I'll play for you is from Jess Nieberg. Uh, this is from a newer poem. I'm pretty sure this is not the first time that we've had this, but it's certainly in its earlier stages. Uh, this is from The Suicide Hotline Puts Me on Hold. The suicide hotline puts me on hold. Like, hold on. Don't do anything drastic quite yet. Your call is important to us. We know this devil has had you by the throat for weeks now. Or months now. Or years. We know some people are born into a chokehold. Your call is important to us. Now, one thing I really like about this poem is its device. This idea that the suicide hotline puts you on hold. And, and not a lot of people would think 
of that. And a lot of people would think to use that and, to, and turn it into fodder for a poem. Not a lot of people would find the metaphor in that, but Jess does a great job about this this one kind of baffling experience, if you think about it. You call a suicide hotline, the last thing you want to do is be put on hold, and the last thing that maybe they should do is put you on hold. I mean, you understand that like they're only human and, and the volume of calls and whatever, but it is kind of ironic that you call someone to ask for help, and the first thing that they do is just tell you to hold on a second. So this was a great piece. I'm really excited to see all the newer work coming from Jess. In fact, spoiler alert, I just came from a Hear Hear poetry reading with a bunch of the Denver crew. Piper Mullins was there, Jess Nieberg, Ian Doggerty, Paulie Lippman, myself. Uh, Jill Carno was there, and Jess has got some absolute fire in the works. Jess is coming with, like, really, really amazing brand new poems, and I hope to capture some sound of those poems for later broadcasts of this podcast. And then the last clip in the first round is going to be from Piper Mullins. Uh, this is an older piece, but I don't think I've actually put a clip of this on the podcast before. Uh, this is Piper's T.S. Eliot poem. It was inspired by and is a, a direct reference to a T.S. Eliot poem, but the actual poem is called For Sam, because it's, it's about Piper's brother, Sam. So here is a small piece of Piper's first round poem. This is what it sounds like when the world begins. It's a baby's first cry, last cry, and I love you and I'm sorry, it tires squealing, it's gunshots. The sound of a car crashing 1,200 feet into the bottom of a canyon and the flight for life helicopter that follows. And any of you English majors out there will recognize the reference to T.S. Eliot. Uh, I believe the poem is Hollow Men when he says this is not how the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. And Piper uses that refrain, uses that idea throughout this piece. Uh, the clip I played you was from toward the end of the piece where the turn happens, but a lot of the setup for this poem is in reference to this is not how the world ends, this is not how the world ends, and then that allows Piper to really talk about all these different ways that the world can end, either metaphorically or literally. Um, talking a lot about experiences of people that they knew personally who died or metaphorically times in a person's life that that can really change it and can really allow that person to be reborn and to be someone new and someone different so this is one of my favorite poems of piper's and so i was really excited to put this up on the podcast so from that first round we only had four make it to the second round you your four in the second round were piper mullins jess Sneeberg. Jamon Hill, who elected to go third, even though he got the high score, because I guess three is the magic number for him, and Meta made it into the second round. The two clips I'm going to play for you are from Piper and from Jamon. Uh, again, this is another poem that I've been really excited to try and get on this podcast. This poem's been around for a couple of years, but for whatever reason, I just haven't been able to capture the audio for it. And... This is another one of Piper's signature pieces, so I will just let the poem speak for itself. For the motherfucker who thinks my poems don't work in any room. Yeah! My cock is bigger than yours. Yes! My cock's 110 inches long and bulletproof. And those are the opening lines. That's the first part of the poem. And from there, Piper just goes off on this, this metaphor of my cock is bigger than yours, my cock does this, my cock does that. It is a phenomenal piece. It's funny. It's poignant. It makes the audience laugh. makes the audience cheer. And this was our second huzzah of the evening. Yes, both from the number one position, I might add. 
Jamon got it from the number one position in the first round. Piper Mullins got it from the second round. So I think there's maybe something to going first here. You know, don't sleep on that number one position, everybody who's listening out there. The other clip I'll play you for you is from Jamon Hill. And his second round piece was about ghost pepper hot sauce. And this was it almost reminded me a little bit of a Bo Sia poem. Because Jamon spends a whole lot of this poem building up and building up and, and really getting to a point and then really drops that point in the audience's lap in the last couple of lines, really in the last, like, ten seconds of this piece does he make that turn, and it's a really hard turn. And that's something that Bosia really liked to do in a lot of his poems. He would spend, like, three minutes just setting the audience up for the last one line or last two lines, and that really did remind me of what Jamon was doing for the ghost pepper hot sauce. When my high school English teacher gave me ghost pepper hot sauce, I was ready to prove my toughness, my manhood. I ignored his warnings, ignored the kids running out of the room, mouths literally aflame, the beef chalupas I had for lunch, and all common sense. And in the final round, we had Jamon Hill and Piper Mullins. Jamon, going again from the one, came up and did a very, very personal piece. Now, of the pieces I've heard from him, not a lot of them are as personal as he got with this third round piece. Um, I will play you a clip from this, and we, there's a lot to talk about. So, first, here's a clip from Jamon's third round piece. In America, they've decided that black lives don't matter unless they're acting as the predators they claim us to be. So when this poem first starts, the audience is under the impression that he's going to talk about race relations amongst police officers because he brings up the name Philando Castile and about what could he have done to get out of that situation alive. And I don't personally think there's anything that Philando could have done to get out of the situation he was in alive because the officer should not have been an officer. And there's a whole lot of police out there who should not be police. But then, Jamon turns it on us. He changes it to really address this idea not just of race, but of class. Because the part that I played you from is when he's referencing Bill Cosby. The other big news story going around in the last week or so is that Bill Cosby got acquitted and then announced that he's going on a national tour to talk to men about how to not get convicted of a rape charge. Which is crazy. Not just like to me, but that's a concept that is crazy. How are you going to get acquitted of all these different rape charges and the first thing you're going to do is go around and try and teach other men how to do this. That I can't wrap my brain around that. And so Jamon starts off talking just about race and police, but then he really does a great job of turning it to say, you know what, maybe the one thing that Philando Castile could have done to get out of their life was to be famous and to be rich and to be Bill Cosby because it seems like that guy can't get arrested or put in jail for anything. And so not only did... Jamon Hill win the slam, but he got another huzzah, again, from the first position in the third round off of that poem. Uh, it was a great night. It was a really, really great night for poetry. And Jamon, even though he wasn't a feature, he sold just a ton of books because he went up to do his victory lap and said, hey, you know, if you would like some books, I've got these ones over here. He had a line out the door of people wanting to buy these books because he was that captivating. He was that... Uh, good and at connecting with the audience so another great evening another great week of poetry now 
we've got some takeaways before we get out of here. First up, your interview next week is with none other than the one and only Mary McDonough. It's going to be a great, great time, and I hope you're going to be there to to share in that experience with us. And if you would like to volunteer for the National Poetry Slam, you can do so at npsdenver.com. We are still looking for many, many volunteers. We're a little bit short. We could definitely use your help. And it's a great way to go into these bouts and to see these bouts for free. And all you got to do is volunteer to scorekeep or timekeep or run the door or run the merch or, you know, whatever. And then you get into not just the bout that you're in for free, but all of the bouts throughout the week except for final stage for free. And you cannot beat that with anything. Before we get out of here, I want to say thank you again to Wheeler Light. It's a good sound to make if someone is doing a good thing. To Jessica Bardo. The trees are fucking again! And to the audience at the Mercury Cafe. Blah, 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 crazy, blah, blah, crazy, crazy, blah, blah. Remember that the points are not the point. And that poetry is not the point. And that the point is, was, and always will be the people. We'll see you next week, everyone.